0: Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Claude Clegg, the author of The Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama. This is his fourth book. He teaches African-American history in Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina. He's a Tar Heel. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Clang. My pleasure. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page. To ask for your support in keeping the show going, go to patreon.com slash AxelBankHistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. On the night Barack Obama was elected president in November of 2008, the anchor on NBC News said that Obama had broken a barrier as old as the Republic. And as the celebrations began in Chicago as hundreds of thousands waited for Barack Obama to claim the presidency, to appear with his all-American family, another commentator was asked if he wanted to take a crack at words, words to sum up the moment. And the response was, I don't know that anyone can. The moment was seen by this commentator as a new day in American history, with him saying that it was a chance to emerge from the deep shadows of our racist past. Dr. Clegg, is the quintessential lesson Barack Obama can teach us that history is never really dead?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I I think that that is at the core of how historians think. um, that, That is, history is always with us. We don't have a present without the past. And we as historians, we're interpreters of the past, that is we, we read the past with the benefit of hindsight, the present. Uh, so I think that uh, Barack Obama, his election triumph in 2008 and re- being reelected in 2012 says a lot historically about the country and in a way that should not be read However, as a rupture with the past, that is, Barack Obama is not some, some person or his presidency is something existing outside of history. No, uh, there's a confluence of factors, events, um, uh, happenstance and so forth that makes him possible uh, as a historical figure, not as someone who's, who defeats history or defeats this sort of American past that made us believe that it's not possible. No, he's a, he's a product of his His times, uh, his presidency are a product of that past when we need to think historically about it.
0: And the commentator used the word racist past as a way, you know, emphasis, my emphasis there is on past, as if this was going to be somehow a new age that Barack Obama represented this new face of American politics. the whole
1: promise of Barack Obama was that he was going to help us to think more positively about ourselves uh, as Americans. Uh, That is, he was going to help us not necessarily to think less about race, but certainly not to put it at the center of everything. That that was the whole promise of uh, of the Obama presidency. The whole hope and change was that um, he himself would be the first to say that he is not a post-racial president, president and that that's a problematic term. I think he wanted to be the first, or he wanted to be a post-partisan president. He thought that being elected in the midst of this great recession with, where you are losing hundreds of thousands of jobs for a year and we have two foreign wars going on, that Republicans and Democrats have put aside their, their ideological differences, their policy differences, and do what was right for the country to get it out of this ditch that it was in so he certainly wanted to be sort of a post-partisan president which you know because the parties do have race embedded in the way they operate in regard to their appeals being post-partisan is kind of flirting with the idea of being post-racial too Uh, but he would be the first to to say that you know this is not a rupture with the past Uh, but at the same time I think that he is or was purposefully positioning his presidency as something new in the American experiment with democracy, and that the whole promise of his presidency was that we were going to think positively about each other and about citizenship and about responsibilities to each other, which meant, if not putting race aside, then certainly not being preoccupied with it.
0: The title of your book, and, and by the way, it is a wonderful book and it's a thoughtful book. And now that we have the benefit of legitimate hindsight here, five, six years after the, the, the president left office, um, we have uh, you know a, a good chance to take stock of the history of the Obama administration, all eight years of it. It's a great book. So it's, it's thoughtful and it's titled The Black President. And I want to get into the book a little bit here. And, and it was so interesting to observe The obama presidency and i'm going to go through a few moments here there were moments that belonged to him as a president in ways they only could have belonged to an african-american for instance bending down to let a young african-american boy feel his hair in the oval office singing amazing grace at a eulogy for a racial killing clutching his daughter in nelson mandela's cell in south africa Fist bumping the Lincoln Memorial in a cartoon, saying that if he had saying that if he had a son, he would look like Trayvon. Pundits expected or wanted a post racial era from him. Why did you think we needed to look at him through the lens of his blackness?
1: Yeah, I think it's unavoidable, Evan, uh, that um, he he brings that to the Oval Office at the first not only first black president, but the first black first family uh, coming into the Oval Office. So whether or not he wanted to bring that into the office or not, he was, he was doing that. And that's how he was going to be read. And I, again, I think that's part of his appeal. That is, uh, many of the folks who supported him across the board, regardless of the demographic, whether it's whites, blacks, Hispanics, Asian voters, young voters, urban voters, suburban voters, and so forth. Uh, part of the appeal was that you had this serious, competent, Uh, well-trained, you know, Ivy League guy who also happened to be Black, running for the highest office in the land not to say that people just go out and vote because you know this is a black guy let's go vote for him but he had to have all these other things you know he had the pedigree uh again he was a serious candidate for the office uh well-trained u.s senator you know so it wasn't a case of just some black guy got got elected but he's guy with this amazing background and pedigree and education and so forth but also happens uh to be black as well so I, I think that for many Americans, this was the opportunity to do something new and to say something new about the country as well. Uh, on the, you know, sort of flip side, uh, there have been those who joked and said, of course, you know, it would be a black guy that you elect to the worst job in, 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 in the world in regard to in the midst of this great recession, that something we hadn't seen since the Great Depression. Of course, you're going to give the job to him and see <laughs> watch it blow up in his face, which is, I, I think, a very... Um, uh,
0: Who would want that? Cynical, right? yes. Yeah, yeah. Cynical, white, reading, black, it, or yeah, right.
1: Yeah, but I, I think that the fact that a Barack Obama is possible, given the history of race in this country, uh, is is a way of encountering that history and trying to grapple with it in the grandest way possible. Electing uh, a black guy to be the forty fourth president of the United States in the worst crisis the country has seen since the Great Depression, uh, it says something great about the American experiment in democracy, I think. Uh, And at least in that moment, of course, all of the forces of reaction against that come out during the course of his his presidency and beyond. Uh, But I think in that particular moment, uh, it was sort of a window into the possibilities of what the country could be uh, in terms of, Uh, not necessarily surmounting, but learning from his history of race and trying to do better by it. So I I think that the country, um, yeah, they see his blackness and they read it perhaps in a way that's refreshing. I think that's the big, big thing. That is, it is not a handicap to him becoming elected. uh, And it's certainly not his ticket to becoming elected. It was, okay, this is a black guy in a black first family uh, however, he was the best qualified for the job of all the candidates we looked at, uh, and not only were we going to elect him, we're going to re-elect him for a second term in office. So it's uh, again not a a case in which race didn't didn't matter. That it always matter matters, but a, a case in which is not the handicap uh, or the disability that it had once been in regard to people seeking high office.
0: You quote. Um, You opened the book with a conversation with uh, a relative who was older than you, um, had seen um, a lot of uh, American history. Um, The quote that stuck out to me was, the presidency was a white man's job. That was their interpretation of the American presidency. Do you believe from all your studies of history, was that deliberate or was that just the way it worked out?
1: So oh, I think it's very deliberate. Yeah, um, yeah. Barack Obama is the 44th president of the United States. All 43 behind him were white guys. Um, so I, either that's the, the longest string of coincidences that history has ever recorded, or that there's there's some tilting uh, of the the game towards a particular demographic, which I would argue be the case. Um, I think that Obama, if not shattering that 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 ceiling and some historic you know runs by people like hillary clinton uh, although this she doesn't get elected you know certainly she she won the popular vote in 2016 and kamala harris becoming the first uh woman of color to become become vice president uh so uh, it's a very consequential uh, uh election of uh, an african-american in 2008, uh, uh, Barack Obama, for these other openings for women, for women of color and so forth. But no, yeah, the the system was such that uh, prior to him becoming president, yeah, it was not, I don't think, uh, a coincidence that all his predecessors were white men.
0: He said his presidency was the best of times and the worst of times for black America. And much of your book is an analysis of the ways he lived up to expectations to be a transformational president and ways that he did not. And you write that there was a tension that grew out of the ways that policy didn't match the famous promise of hope and change. In other words, you have the promise the, the promise on one side and you have the policy and the realities of governing on... The other side, um, you you likened it to walking a tightrope for him. Why was there such a tightrope? And it seems to be grounded in, as you just said, the 43 previous presidents and the system that they represented.
1: Uh, that's a great question. That's really core of the book. Uh, That is, Barack Obama is sort of this navigator, this tightrope walker of all these different constituencies and policies and expectations and hopes and dreams and so forth. Um, And uh, the way in which he's able to, as, as head of state for eight years, to... Manage um, uh, these different constituencies and conflicting policy agendas and expectations and not be consumed or, or destroyed by uh, sort of the, the slipperiness of the tightrope walking that he has to do. Uh, if you look at all the data coming out of the Great Depression, you can look at the data now, you can look at the data before Barack Obama becomes president, whether it's unemployment rates, whether it's incarceration rates, whether it's home ownership, uh, whether it's Um, uh, healthcare coverage and so forth, you'll see African Americans really at the bottom. Maybe maybe Latinos as well, uh, people of Hispanic origin in some of those statistics, but certainly African Americans. So Barack Obama becomes president in the midst of, again, the worst economic crisis in uh, the country since the Great Depression. African Americans are unlike the rest of the country, they're suffering a depression where the country is suffering a recession. So if you look at their uh, unemployment rates, it's usually twice that, at least twice that of the rates of whites. Uh, Home ownership rates are significantly lower. Wealth uh, and household income significantly lower. So there were those African-Americans who, you know, said, well, Mr. President, you know, of all the groups who voted for you, you know, 96% of African-American voters voted for you. That's the highest of any group in regard to the percentage of their vote. Uh, and the thinking was that when people come out like that, you need to really reward them for that vote. And not only that, there was a moral obligation. That is, you see a segment of the society suffering in terms of, you know, mass incarceration, in terms of wealth loss, in terms of home foreclosure, in terms of unemployment rates. You see a segment of the society, just fellow Americans, regardless of who voted for you, who didn't, uh, who were suffering disproportionately. And there was a moral obligation, according to these people, uh, these critics of the, the president, that he would target them for particular with particular policies that would uh, abate some of the economic uh, damage that they were facing in the midst of the recession. So he has to balance that, I think, uh, a strong moral argument from folks who said that there needs to be target relief to communities in distress um african americans uh, hispanics uh, urban communities and so forth um there needs to be targeted relief as opposed to his own instincts as a sort of universalist you know the rising tide will lift all vo- boats if we make Healthcare affordable for everyone, that's going to help African Americans, it's going to help Latinos and so forth. So uh, he's trying to uh, come up with a policy that improves the, the lot of a vast range of Americans, and, and that would include the most vulnerable, while at the same time, not appearing to say, okay, I'm going to provide special target relief for African-Americans. I think he understood the politics of that. That yeah, is, he,
0: he, yeah. He, he even says at one point in, in your book, um, he even says, I, I, I will have an easier time appealing to everybody and also helping African-Americans as a byproduct of that because they're included in everybody. Um, but he also, um, according to you, used symbolism um, as well as a language that black America could, could, um, could relate to him with how did he do that
1: he did a number of instances and, and at the top of the show evan you you mentioned a few uh one i think very consequentially he uh, related to trayvon martin a young african-american teenager who was killed by uh as he was walking home from the store, he looks suspicious to a guy who lived in the neighborhood and, and the guy ended up shooting him. Uh, Barack Obama gives a press conference and says that if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon, uh, which was, I think, perhaps the most fitting thing that he ever said in his entire presidency uh, to, to identify like that with a young black teen in a way that, as you mentioned, only he as a black president could. Uh, there were other instances. There was some cultural signifying. He, you know, he I don't know if you remember at the Apollo, this famous theater in New York, mm-hmm. in which he belted out a few lines of Al Green's yeah. uh It's song. a good
0: video. I've seen that video. Yeah. He was a fundraiser, yeah. I think, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: He yeah. has a middling singing voice, so he's able to do that. <laughs> uh, you mentioned also the uh, the massacre, Grace. the church massacre yeah. that takes place in Charleston in June of twenty. 20- 15, he eulogizes uh, the nine people who were killed there uh, and, and starts, you know, a rift on Amazing Grace uh, in this black historic church. So there there were those instances in which um, uh, he really purposefully tried to connect with black audiences. Some would simply dismiss, dismiss this as symbolism. You know, this is it's not substance if you want to do something substantial, do something about these failing schools, do something about mass incarceration and so forth. And and that was, that, I think that was a very uh, worthwhile line of critique for the symbolism, but at the same time, I think the symbolism itself was very powerful and he used it to, I think very effective and uh, uh, very effective ways.
0: And what were a few of the policies um, that, that either were targeted to African-Americans or, um, disproportionately helped African-Americans that he um, advocated for and was able to enact?
1: Oh, great, great question. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, which is his signature policy, the health care policy, the ACA, or colloquially known as Obamacare. So uh, that helps get onto the books more people of color disproportionately, uh, largely due to the Medicare expansion component uh, that's part of that. So it expands Medicare access, and health care access to uh, greater numbers of people, and again, disproportionately helping people of color. Um, late in his term, there was uh, some somewhat consequential criminal justice changes whether uh, or reforms, whether it was the, the, the uh, consent decrees with uh, several urban uh, police departments, uh, Ferguson, uh Chicago, Newark, and, and, so other, and so forth, in regard to policing and how the burdens of bad policing that fell upon uh, minority communities in particular. Uh, Pell grants uh, were very helpful uh, in regard to uh, students who had financial need and wanted to go to college. Those were expanded during his his time in office as well. Uh, the stimulus package uh, that was passed in uh, the, the, right at the beginning of his presidency, uh, helped African-Americans, for example. African-Americans are disproportionately employed in public jobs, driving buses, postal service, and that sort of thing. It saved a lot of those jobs, uh, the stimulus package. It was $800 billion, which seems kind of small compared to <laughs> today, right? You know, 3.5 trillion. Still gets you a cup of coffee, pay. though, right? Yes yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Don't quit your day job. Uh, so... Uh that, uh, some portions of the stimulus package uh, helped African-Americans disproportionately. The auto bailout, uh, you know, saved Detroit, I'd argue, uh, from collapsing in on itself. A lot of jobs uh, uh, employing African-Americans were saved there, too. So there were a number of uh, things that he did that, again, he sort of broad strokes health care, criminal justice reform. but they if you look underneath the hood uh they helped uh disproportionately african americans
0: i do want to ask about white people also because it is fair to say that barack obama did um better with white voters than um than al gore did than John Kerry did, then Hillary Clinton did, and then Joe Biden did. I mean, just look at some of the states that Barack Obama won. He had them in his pocket. It didn't take three or four days of counting. I mean, he put those babies in his pocket uh, nice and early. And we're talking about Ohio. We're talking about the uh, the, the blue wall states, the the formal, blue, you know, that, that, that Trump was able to win. But you're talking about Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. There was never a doubt in those states. And not to mention... Iowa, New Hampshire, not a lot of black voters in those states, and Obama put them away easily. Um, Indiana in 2008, people forget that. Um, We cannot cannot imagine a Democratic candidate winning those states, white or black. So what made Barack Obama so popular with white voters?
1: I think to a certain extent, at least in 2008, we can thank George W. Bush for... um, being going, leaving office as a very unpopular Republican government, a governor or president, uh, and um, making people want a change after eight years of his presidency, after two wars, uh, it, uh, economic collapse, mortgage, mortgage, uh, the mortgage industry explodes during President Bush's, the second President Bush's watch. So I, I think there's an opening for anyone who's going to, any Democratic candidate who. Is a serious candidate and and is talking about some sort of change uh, in course and so forth. So I I think that works very much to Barack Obama's advantage. I think that he's speaking the language of some of these, a lot of those voters as well in Ohio. You know, if if you just lost your job or you, you know, it looks like you're going to lose your job building. You know Toyotas or whatever's been built there are in Detroit, Michigan, the swing state. Um, you, know, you you just saw a near death experience, uh, and Obama's saying we're going to bail out. Uh, and this actually started during George George W. Bush's uh, final days in the presidency, the auto bailout. So to give him credit there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you're you know if you're going to save this industry, and you're going to throw hundreds of billions of dollars into doing so. You're going to get some voters in those places. Uh, the same with the expansion of healthcare. I think that that um, you know was a bread and butter economic issue. Healthcare is crazy expensive in this country. It still is, uh, but I think that you're speaking the language of that sort of middle aspiring working class voter in Michigan or Ohio and, and so forth um, in ways that, uh, in the midst of a, a economic collapse, uh, resonates with people uh, in in terms of again, bread and butter issues that people are voting for.
0: And it's worth noting that he ran very strong statewide in Illinois. I mean, this is somebody who did very well in Chicago, but won. I think it was like 70% of the vote statewide. So he had to do very, very well in downstate Illinois, which is an experience that he talks a lot about. There's a lot of farming community there. There's a lot of rural community there. And he understood driving back and forth from Chicago to the statehouse in Springfield those voters and and what um, made them tick. Uh, I, I want to ask, um, you know, we have a very interesting notion of blackness in America, right? I mean, this goes back to slavery, and this goes back to to very difficult parts of our history, some of which we're still living through. Where did his blackness come from? Um, we have had David Moranis uh, on uh, our show, so he talked about uh, President Obama's early years. Um, but let's Let's just lay it out there. His father was Kenyan, his mother was kansan, um, raised in he he was raised in Hawaii around almost no other black people. Um I've heard scholars say Barack Obama did not live the classic, if you can put it into a box, the classic experience of most black children now i'm not at all saying that it's not a very diverse group of people and there are all kinds of backgrounds and america is a great amazing fascinating country but if you can put it into a box the experience barack obama didn't live that uh didn't live inside that box um but because of american social siri thinks i'm talking to her because of american social mores um he's living life as a black youngster um, talk about his roots and what you discovered um, his, uh, about his roots and then as they related to the way he ran for office and then served as president.
1: Uh, again, I think that's perhaps the most fascinating puzzle, conundrum about Barack Obama and the way he sort of pieces together or self-constructs uh, an identity. Uh, not only a black identity, but an American identity that that resonates um, uh, to the point that he could get elected uh, in 2008. Um, he comes. He says he comes about his identity, his blackness, in a sort of roundabout way, and that's probably about right. Uh, I think that's part of the allure, his sort of exoticness. Uh, you know, he he have um, his mom and dad who meet in Hawaii. How exotic can you could be? And the dad is from kenya the mom is from kansas uh by way of washington state and they meet and go to college they have this 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 young this boy uh and then the mother takes them all around the pacific world they live in indonesia for a while he's back in hawaii and, and so forth so i think that sort of um non-conventional background racial background mixed background then comes to the the, the mainland And then he reinvents himself as Barack Obama. In his childhood, he was simply Barry. So he embraces that once he becomes a community organizer in Chicago and sort of gets steeped in the issues and the problems of South Side Chicago. Then he goes and he puts on this other hat. So imagine this guy with a whole closet full of hats. (laughs) So he has the sort of Barack Obama from Hawaii and the sort of Mixed race, diverse, exotic hat. And then he has a Southside hat, uh, in which he gets his sort of bona fide as a, as a black guy. And then he goes off to Harvard. So he's not get his black elite hat. Uh, he's over the Harvard Review uh, in the law school. Uh, he's Columbia undergrad. And then he goes back and gets involved in Chicago politics. He gets married to a black woman. He had had
0: white girlfriends growing up. Yeah,
1: that is true. Uh, But he he actually marries a a, a fellow Harvard law grad, Michelle Robinson. Have beautiful children and so forth. So he's amphibious in that way, sort of moving between the lines of race. You know, and they're porous to begin with. For for we're focusing on sort of elite strata. So he's he's able to move between lines of of race. Uh, as he ascends the class ladder. So he's not the case. It's not the case that any black person can now become president because he was president. No, you know, this is a certain, you know, pedigree. He goes to, you know, this, this private academy in Hawaii. And then he comes to the mainland. He's Columbia undergrad. He's Harvard law school and then he's a state senator in illinois and he's a u.s senator so this is not just joe blow black guy this is this is a particular kind of person who falls into a particular lineage when it comes to presidents who have you know ivy league educations and they they've come through the congress and so forth so i think that that complicates his blackness and, and, and perhaps expands what we think of as, as what this term blackness might include maybe it includes you know this guy who is actually biracial it includes this guy who is born in of all places the middle of the pacific it includes this guy who has his harvard league, this harvard pedigree and so forth um a guy who phenotypically is not a dark-skinned guy it's very easy, easy to say fairly uh, light-skinned guy uh which has its own lineage in the sort of colorism among African Americans, um, that is, could he, if he were a conspicuously dark skinned guy without this sort of exotic narrative, would he have been as appealing to people, uh, not only white voters, but black voters, uh, if he were a really dark skinned guy from Georgia or Mississippi? Does that appeal in or, the same way? Or who had way?
0: grown up in Chicago or in Brooklyn or uh, exactly Newark, New Jersey or something. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yes. Um, I, I don't, um, want to say that I don't, well, I, I um, uh, uh, I don't want to say that I, I am hesitant to put, to have you put him on the couch for a second, because I do like doing that. A lot of people don't want to put people on the couch during interviews, but I'm going to ask you to, if, if we can for a second. Um, uh, the gift of a basketball from his father, this is a little bit of an aside, but dare I put, have you put him on the couch and ask if the fact that basketball became his favorite sport was a way of psychologically connecting to his father. This is someone he met one time. This is, he meets him at eight, nine, 10 years old. He gets a basketball from him and basketball becomes his favorite sport. The absent father Gives him a gift, and it becomes a lifelong passion.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'd be that generous to his father. I don't, I don't think the that that the basketball is a connection with the father. I think, if mm-hmm. anything, the basketball is connection with, um, particular youth culture uh, in Hawaii uh, and later in this country. Uh, African Americans. Um, I, I think that is this is a way he sees these guys playing basketball on television. He's six one himself. Uh, and actually he uh has said on a number of occasions that he he grew up wanting to be a basketball player, but you know six
0: one is so not he, be. we all did though I mean you know. yeah
1: <laughs> so but this is a way for a guy who 's in a place like Hawaii, which is like one percent black. Uh, this is a way for him to, again, not only pass the time, you know, with friends and, and so forth in Hawaii, but I think it's a way for him to sort of consciously connect himself with a subculture, an African-American subculture around this particular sport. Uh, and when it comes to the mainland, that stays with him in Southside and so forth. So I, I, I think it's less a connection to the father um, than it is a connection to a certain youth culture and identity uh sort of a roundabout way to an african-american identity uh that stays with him he you know he got knobs with you know the kobe bryans the michael jordans and and others once he once he's here so it's a way of him creating a black masculinity or black male identity for himself by way of this sport that the father had not provided that is the father was this this sort of abstraction and he didn't know him he met unless you in his, his uh, conscious you know, life, he met him at 10 years old. He gave him this gift of basketball and some, some 45 uh, uh, um, African music records and that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I think the bigger thing is him trying to construct what it means to be black and male in Hawaii and so forth. And basketball was a, an entry point into that.
0: As he moved up in politics in Chicago, how was he viewed by his black colleagues, by black rivals, and then black constituents.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I, I think that that's sort of the core of his political identity as it's evolving. Um, he's a carpetbagger, I think, in the understanding of many black politicians. This guy's coming you know, from Hawaii, who did, I mean, what black guys in Hawaii? You know, so this guy's coming from Hawaii by way of Harvard, and he's gonna come to the South Side and 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 school us on politics. And again, the Chicago's just an interesting crucible when it comes to black politics. Of course, Jesse Jackson comes out of Chicago. He runs for president in 1984, 1988. Earl Washington, the first uh mayor of black mayor of chicago is there when obama is um on the south side of the community organized in the 1980s carol mosley Braun, uh black uh, uh senator from uh chicago as well uh in the early late 90s early 20th century early 21st century so chicago's an interesting crucible but it's tip it's known for being very insular uh, whether it's the daily political machine and so forth, if you're an outsider, that's four strikes against you. And Obama was a consummate outsider in regard to this, this pedigree, this I believe pedigree and being from Hawaii and not being from there and, and so forth. So he gets a tough go of it from his black colleagues, especially in the Illinois State House in Springfield. Um, and I think over time he's able to gather a certain amount of credibility uh, because he's just at it for a while. He's in the Illinois State House for like eight years, uh, so he's he's decent enough, and he's there long enough to you know be respectable as a sort of transplant uh, into Chicago politics. Uh, his big opening is, of course, the Senate seat that becomes open in two thousand four. He runs for that. But I, I think if he had just stayed in Chicago politics, he never seems to have been interested in uh, running for city hall or mayor or anything like that. And I don't really see that as—I don't think his DNA is is such that he'd be interested in sort of municipal government in that of that
0: nature sort of reminds me of kennedy kennedy really just had no interest in state politics or in horsing around with you know state level issues
1: that's right that's right and that was one of the critiques of obama you know this guy's just using us as a stepping stone to the next big thing right so he's he's not serious about illinois politics he's not serious about being in the illinois senate you know this this guy's just you know, look, look at his track record. You know, he's bouncing from Hawaii and then he's Southside and then he's at Columbia and then he's at Harvard and then he's back here. Of course, he's off to somewhere else. He's not, you know, he's not invested and he has to sort of stay in Illinois politics to the point that at least some some people would say, okay, you know, he has this, this strange name and he's out from the outside and so forth, but, you know, he's been around and uh, will give him the benefit of the doubt at least hearing him out. I mean, he actually, his first run for uh, a position outside of the Illinois state legislature is unsuccessful it's against yeah. Bobby Rush for that yeah. house seat. Uh, and he, he falls on his face, but, and that fueled the talk about, okay, this guy's not, you know, he's not really, you know, in it for the long term. He's just, he's, he, this is a stepping stone to the next big game for him. Um, he was and he was and I guess is profoundly ambitious um and he'd be the first to say that uh, yeah. I have a section of the book called a chronic restlessness and he and that's actually his term um that you know it was it was hard to focus on the here and now it was always the next step it was always you know the winning the next race and so forth so um yeah, a lot of black politicians—that's sort of, you know those who have been in the trenches since the civil rights movement, the Barbara Russias and others—just uh, uh, saw him as you know, sort of a you know loafer uh, and a loafer who who would just come in and 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 increases name recognition and, and get a constituency, and then he's off to the next thing.
0: How does he frame the next thing? How, how does he frame? race during the 2008 campaign and one of the ways that he really does have to frame it there's a major dust up that a major you know i don't want to use the word scandal but there was a major um incident that occurs with jeremiah wright who's a family pastor he preached at the church the obamas attended um i believe he even presided over their wedding um he was revealed or i guess tapes were found of comments that were construed as being anti-american um and his political opponents, Barack Obama's political opponents, try to use those comments to cast the future president in the same way. If the pastor thinks this, then, then Senator Obama has got to think this stuff. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama has or decides to give a speech. What was in the speech? How did he decide to give that speech? And how did he frame race as he t- embarks on this run for the presidency?
1: Yeah, if there was ever a moment that promised to or uh, portended to overturn a candidate's presidential aspirations, the Jeremiah Wright incident, or really a series of incidents during the 2008 uh, campaign threatened to do that with Barack Obama. Jeremiah Wright was a a double-edged sword. Uh, On the sort of good side of the sword, the good side of the blade, so to speak, um, he um uh, consolidated barack obama's christian bona fides you know because there was a whisper campaign it had been going on since the 2004 run that he made for the u.s senate that this was, guy was a closet muslim and that you know he's this radical and so forth and you're going to elect this guy who's this you know uh terrorist sympathizer and that gets played up during the general election of 2008 by sarah palin uh, who's campaigning with um John McCain. So, being connected to Jeremiah Wright, this Christian church with this big congregation in Chicago, uh, kind of puts to bed, you know, this idea this guy is is sort of closet Muslim, you know, so he has a long affiliation with this church, uh, which also gives him spiritual community, him and his family, family, spiritual community uh, as well. So, uh, in an ideal world, Jeremiah Wright, the association, would have been a positive one. He was a mentor for, to Barack Obama. Barack Obama, I think, saw him as a kind of spiritual father figure that his own father had not been. Uh, so that's the positive reading of that association. Okay, the, the other side of that sword, the double-edged sword, was that his, Jeremiah Wright's critiques of American shortcomings and. You know, whether was, he had a long list, whether it's foreign policy, military, misadventures, whether it's on race, whether it's on healthcare, whether it's on mass incarceration. And he would round these things off in very fiery language, language and uh, before his congregations. So if you're the guy who's running to make people feel good about race and good about the country and hope and change and, and you know, and. Your pastor is saying, God damn America, and it's, you know, it's awful place, and it's racist, and it's unredeemable. You have a problem if you're the guy who's trying to thread that needle. Barack Obama um, uh, decided to, and, and, and he's an interesting character insofar as he, his instincts are to be cautious and to be strategic and pragmatic. But now and then, he can do something bold. And this was an instance in which he said, well, if the campaign is going to blow up in my face, I'm going to give this speech and have my say about what's going on with Jeremiah Wright. So he gives a speech in Philadelphia in March of 2008, and it was sort of typical, high, tight, rope walking Barack Obama, in which he's it's both sides of PISM. So he's saying African-Americans have... Um, Good reason to be upset about high unemployment and low wealth and home ownership rates and mass incarceration and and uh, government neglect and decaying you know schools and so forth. But white Americans have reason to be upset about you know, charges, you know, of racism, whether real or imagined, and um, uh, a a, a litany of other things uh, that that they might be concerned about as well. So he sort of splits the baby. He, He says, okay, both sides don't really understand each other. And the problem is these corporations and, you know, these elites who are manipulating white fears and so forth, and it's Fox News and so forth. Uh, so if we all just got on one page, talk to each other and so forth, um, we we advance as a country and as citizens, better informed about other citizens. And, and Jeremiah Wright was... You know, he was wrong in his critique and America is not endemically racist and he's a throwback to some early era era in which, you know, racism was much more of a problem. So Jeremiah Wright would later say he was thrown under the bus in the speech. Maybe, maybe, maybe not, but it, it was certainly an instance in which Obama is trying to appeal to both sides, African-Americans and whites on, issue, on the issue of race uh, and at the same time put to bed this Jeremiah Wright thing. That is, Jeremiah Wright's wrong about all these things. I like him, and he you know, he officiated my wedding, and he baptized my kids, and so forth. But he's wrong, this, this, this race thing. So it was to get beyond the Jeremiah Wright explosion, which I think the speech does do that kind of labor. Um, but again, it's sort of vintage Obama. You can do something bold. I think the speech is a bold thing. But it's also the sort of calculated, strategic, pragmatic, Okay, let's do something for each side. Everybody's not wrong. Everybody's not right. Uh, middle ground seeking—that he's known for.
0: We also saw a similar technique as he has uh, he embarked on the beer summit with uh, Dr. Gates. Um, uh, but let's—I want to ask about another person, another very powerful person, um, Bill Clinton. Um, as Obama is running in two thousand eight against Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was seen as something close to a shoe in for the Democratic nomination. And Bill Clinton really reacts. Um, I, as I was rereading the passages in the book about Bill Clinton's reaction to Barack Obama's candidacy, I almost couldn't believe that he was at one time labeled the first black president, um, kind of colloquially. No one ever thought that, of course, seriously, But but it was Bill Clinton's connection with the black community that... Um, much ink has been spilled on about how he was able to cultivate these connections and how he kind of represented sort of Southern black wishes for, um, for more equal society. Um, And in 2008, Bill Clinton doesn't just borrow from racist tropes. He uses them against Barack Obama. So I want to ask what did that foreshadow about how other older white men would react to Barack Obama? Uh,
1: Clinton um, Bill Clinton, that is, um, one, he's masterful when it comes to politics. So he, as he, as, uh, which made, makes his claim that no, it I wasn't really saying. That that's misread and so forth, less credible. I think he knew exactly what he was doing and his strategizing against Barack Obama in 2008 and trying to get his wife elected. And on one on one level, you know, he, he had, and Barack Obama and others, Jesse Jackson, and others have said, you know, the man is trying to get his wife Hillary Clinton elected. Of course, uh, a good husband is going to go all out, and you know, perhaps he goes too far, but you know. Um, you know, you can understand that he'd be defensive about his wife and trying to get her elected. Okay. So that's, you know, I, I don't put a lot of stock in that argument myself uh, because I think he does damage to both her campaign. I think he does damage to the discourse around campaigning in general, general during the 2008 election. So um, he tries his hardest to paint Obama as the black candidate up front. Uh, after the, the, february uh late january early february 2008 south carolina primary uh he he more or less dismisses obama's win there oh so, yeah jesse jackson won south carolina too which immediately puts him in the box of being the black candidate right uh knowing that in some uh less diverse states than south carolina that may hurt obama going forward so th- yeah this is the black candidate this is the black guy he won south carolina like the other black guy won Jesse Jackson won in the 1980s. And of course, in true clinton style, he said, No, I didn't really mean that. Y'all just, you know, if anything, they played the race card on me. That's what, that's what Clint would say. Um, so I, I think that there, um, his, he had a willingness to go there in a really sort of gop republican style to employ race. And there's a sort of dog whistle against Obama as you'd see others employ against him later on, or Obama later on. I also think that um,
0: there's a generational
1: thing that perhaps is going on. And this is one of the things that happens between Obama and Jesse Jackson. I think that that's, you know, Jesse Jackson technically supports Obama during the 2008 election but he says some really sort of nasty things about him uh and some of those things get on the record uh about obama and i think a lot of that's generational you know this guy is coming out of nowhere uh he didn't put his time in during the civil rights movement um you know he doesn't come out of this lineage of struggle in the united states uh like you know other african-american leaders you know, he kind of disappeared, fully formed, uh, and is running for the highest office in the land just four years in the Senate. He hasn't put in his dues yet. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a generation of politicians, of black leaders, of civil rights activists who find Obama, or found Obama problematic because he had not been around during these earlier time periods. He, he hadn't weighed in line. Um, for his time to be president, he was sort of jumping ahead of the time line, I think the the Clintons thought that uh, both of them that is hillary clinton she's she has long standing ties with the black community. her husband is two term president, as you just said, Evan, you know uh, he was so beloved among some African Americans that some said he 's the first black president, largely because he was treated so poorly by his GOP opponents they would say who you know who would they treat like that but a black person. So you know they're treating him like they, they treat a black guy. So he's our first black president. Uh, so I think the Clintons thought that you know how dare this guy, you know, jump, try, try to jump ahead of the line. The Clintons have been grooming or have been cultivating black communities since Clinton was a governor back in the eighties. Uh, since Obama you know, was in
0: college, yeah. Yeah, he's
1: a college. He's he's on the south side of, of, of Chicago. With the Clintons were cultivating black constituencies uh people in the clinton administration african-americans who would then go off to do other things by passing through the clinton white house how dare this 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 upstart you know come in and challenge you know hillary clinton who's they didn't say this but who's in line to be president right you know she's next up you know maybe in 2016 you might run or something that's what andrew young said um the, the former uh mayor of um uh, Atlanta and Black civil rights activists. Obama, he said, I, I, I want to support him, but in 2016, more or less, this is Hillary Clinton's time. She has the, you know, all this black support lined up, and so forth. And that was Bill Clinton's, I think, reading. How how dare this 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 guy just show up and and jump ahead of my wife um, when we we had this opportunity to get back to Washington
0: after. Well, we can't talk about. 44 without talking about the reaction to it and talking about 45. Um, After Donald Trump became president, one commentator said that if Obama was the first black president, then Trump is the first white president because he rose to power by seizing on white resentment, the birther issue. Mexicans are bringing drugs and crime. How did Trumpism impact the way you viewed this history project did you ever think to yourself am i really even looking at history right now or li- what considering what we're living through
1: that is a great question That that's the bit that's been the, the challenge and it's been an interesting challenge of writing this book is sort of living through um what you're writing about the, the book ends with the inauguration of joe biden in january of 2021 this year so uh we really don't have much in terms of historical hindsight on this recent 2020 election and so forth so just writing and trying to think about very recent events in historical terms has been uh, a challenge uh, of, of the book. Um, it's been a fun challenge, but it has been a challenge. Um, we historians like to look at things in the rearview mirror after the dust has settled, and we have some distance, and we can interpret it and so forth. Um,
0: we tend to be with a little that. less. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> Good luck with that. That didn't yeah yeah this we time, have.
1: Right? We, yeah. It's a little less comfortable for us to to be yeah. writing about things that you saw yesterday. Um, like you know, as I'm writing the epilogue for this book, I'm just following, you know, just December and January, okay. Um, okay, this guy's not going to he's not going to concede. Okay. Uh he's talking about re- this rigged election. Okay, he's trying to press this official. Okay, oh, an insurrection. Wow. You know, how do you write about this? You know, so I'm trying to put together this epilogue while day to day today, something crazier than the last day is happening. Um, so I think you absolutely have to have the hindsight or the prism of the Trump years to really get an appreciation for the opposition to Obama, uh, that makes possible a Trump. That is even up till election night, 2016, the average person you asked didn't think Donald Trump's be president
0: including States. barack obama i mean barack obama right. famously miscalculated on yes. this, on trump and his ability to seize on that resentment exactly so
1: you know nobody you
0: know the average person did not think that
1: this guy was going to be president and thus they misread the depth of resentment against barack obama this idea of a blackhead state against the Democratic Party, against demographic change in this country, against you know immigration and so forth. They misread all of that, those who didn't see Trump. And Trump's, if if you want to call it a skill or a genius about him when it comes to politics, he had his finger directly on the pulse of those things in ways that I think, you know, political scientists and historians will be studying for a long time.
0: Was he trying, when he did things like um, what do you have to lose and invited the famous rappers to Trump tower and to the oval office. And he made a big, big push on criminal justice reform, certainly public relations wise, but he also signed a bill that was passed by uh, in bipartisan fashion in the Congress and uh, in the house and in the Senate. Um, d- were those an effort by, by the, by the former president, by president Trump to peel away black voters or to make, White voters feel more comfortable with supporting him.
1: Oh, I think both are going on. Uh, that's that's a, that's a great question, a great, a great way to ask the question. I think both are going on. I think that you have to. It, it was not enough just to run up the white vote. Um, you, that was just not going to happen. You're you going to get if you're a Republican candidate for the presidency, you know, 58, 59 percent of the white vote. It was not. It's not enough, um, and you have to win the right configuration of states too. So. Trump knew that he'd have to get some smidgen of the black vote and the Hispanic vote and so forth. And if you couldn't get that vote, try to keep that vote from showing up at the polls. Uh, So you would, you know, uh, he benefited from the assumption that Hillary Clinton had this locked up. Now, I think a lot of people just stayed home because they thought Hillary Clinton had it locked up. Um, you know, the Russians, you know, I, I think that their meddling and use of Facebook, or abuse of Facebook probably kept some people home and, and, and so forth. J- James Comey's late announced investigation, all these things cumulatively work against Hillary Clinton becoming president. Um, but I think that Trump knows... He knew going into 2016 the election that you have to either get some of these other demographics to vote for you, or for them not to vote for anyone. Either way, you know you'd have to you know deprive Hillary Clinton of those votes. Those people voting for you or are staying home. Uh, I think during his presidency, he has some of this feigning in the direction of reaching out to. Black voters and others, the First Steps Act, in which you just referred to, uh, which is more or less sentencing reform that he um, um, uh, criminal justice sentencing reform that he's putting forward, um, which is a continuation of some of the things that Obama was doing, and he makes a lot of it. Um, and, and so that's a way to appeal to you know, again, you, you don't need the majority of the black the black, the black vote, just just enough to make. Uh, those folks maybe show up to the polls or not vote for the Democrat.
0: Even so I think that that's percent. what's going
1: on. Yeah.
0: Um, all right. I got three more questions. First one is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm asking you to, you know, put a letter grade. Uh, I, let me, Stay away from a letter grade. And I just want to ask um, how did, uh, I, I think it was Malia, but it might've been Sasha when they said you're going to be the first black president. You better be a good one. Um, <laughs> Did 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 he fulfill her wishes as it relates to mending our racial wounds um, as best he could? Just one man. I don't want to put the weight of the world on him, but he was president of the United States.
1: Oh uh, yeah, that's 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 a big burden even for the most powerful person in the world who has the biggest platform or bully pulpit. Did um, he mend the racial wounds? There was polling that came out late in his presidency and a good amount of it said that things, racial relations, were worse uh, now than they were at the beginning of his presidency. Uh, If the election of Donald Trump is an indicator of that, uh, then you'd have to say that things did not improve during Obama's time as presidency in regard to race relations, at least in in regard to people's perceptions and perceptions matter. However. I would read the glass half full in terms of it mattered that you had a competent, uh, trained, serious, uh, hardworking head of state in Barack Obama who filled the office, uh, who was qualified for the office and so forth, and that he was reelected to a second term, uh, still in the midst of the aftermath, the fallout of this economic catastrophe. That mattered, Now, I think it said a lot about where the country was uh, in regard to race for him to be reelectable, electable, electable, and then reelectable in the first place. So I think it it mattered in regard to race relations and the sort of possibilities. There was a whole generation of kids, black kids, white kids, brown kids, Asian descent, native kids who grew up with a black president. My son, who who, uh, was born in 2001, uh, it was a sort of normal thing to go through eight years in which, you know, there was a black president. Right, he's 10 well, years
0: old in 2010. So that's he right. Grew up with it. Yeah.
1: So whenever he started paying attention to presidential politics, there was a good black guy in office. and The same for the tens of millions of other kids in his age bracket. So I think that mattered. Now, uh, you have to ask me again in 30 or 40, 50 years from now, uh, after I'm 100 and something years old, how much it mattered. You know, are these kids who are now, you know, 60, 70 years old, are they still reflecting back and say, you know, saying, you know, you know it, I remember good things about this black president. It mattered that he's, uh, you know, in the office and so forth. We don't know that yet. But I think um, in hindsight, in hindsight being um, still pretty close, historically speaking, um, it was a net positive for race relations and the possibilities of race. But at the same time, it's very clear in terms of the ways in which there's a backlash against him, which you know, whether it's the Tea Party, whether it's Trump, whether it's the current state of the Republican Party and so forth in regard to race and, and, and voter suppression all the other things that are going on that have race incorporated into them. Uh, there, There was a cost to having a black president that was born by the society and a cost was a certain sort of polarization that was already going on. But I think that Trump and those of his ilk really exacerbated that division for political gain uh, in some in some very um,
0: uh, effective ways. It was important to have the first black president. People talked about it for two centuries, uh, more than that. How important is it that we have a second Black president to see that this can this can be a repeat affair? Uh, yeah,
1: I think that there's something about the first of anything that is just unique, and you can't. It doesn't mean the same thing when it happens again. Um, yeah, so I think that Barack Obama opens doors to not only Black presidents, but you know, at some point I think we'll we have the first president of Hispanic origin, first female president, first Jewish president, and so forth. So I think Obama sort of opens the door of possibility to having people in that office who have not been from the traditional demographic that's been in the office. Uh, So I think that's important. Um, I think that people can conceive now of a black president. Uh, whether it's you know Kamala Harris or whether it's some other person in the future, whether it's a black Republican, uh, I think that's it, it's not just an abstract thing. Uh, a- actually, after having a black president in office for eight years, so I think just to make something tangible and conceptually possible was one of the big takeaways from his presidency i don't think it will mean the same thing you know for a second or a third black president as having a first one uh, i think you'll see some of the same sorts of resistance to it i don't think that's going away i think you'll see some of the same sorts of uh racist uh, uh attacks on you know, the president whether it's questioning you know where the person's born or that so you and i don't think that's going anywhere but I don't think it will be quite the same in terms of effectiveness uh, and in terms of how we saw it just stymie a lot of what Barack Obama was trying to do. It's it's not normal to have a black president now, but it's more normal than it was uh, before uh, Barack Obama.
0: I want to ask about you. Uh, you... Um... Have written about, I think it was your uncle or was it an old cousin you, you wrote about in your book? Um, I want to ask about what you were doing on that night in 2008, November of 2008. Um, I have, um, I was reporting somewhere. I think I was on the floor of some congressional candidate um, uh, uh, victory party when someone whispered in my ear or maybe called me and said that Obama had won um, or was announced as the likely winner um where were you on that night and what did you as a historian and as someone of african-american descent uh what did you think about uh, during that moment and and how did that moment resonate with you emotionally
1: yeah wow uh i try to capture some of that as you mentioned evan at the beginning of the book uh and the older gentleman is my, gentleman is my dad uh so what he's he i've okay.
0: kept thinking uncle or cousin or something no, but you're, okay you're close sorry. You're i'm close. sorry
1: no, 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 no. I didn't name him, so yeah, yeah you, 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 the reader would be left guessing. Who is this guy? Oh, you
0: didn't about? say. Okay. So, All right. No, I didn't say, so okay.
1: you're, you're very close. Uh, so it's my dad who was in, my, in his 70s. Uh, so I'm at home looking at CNN uh, and just glued to it. I don't know if I was flipping between channels to see who was going to call it first, but I, I know I can remember looking at CNN and Wolf Blitzer. And uh, at the bottom of the screen, it says President-elect, Barack Obama and just that idea of President-elect Barack Obama and so a big you know big caption there and I was talking to my dad and I said you know let's get off the phone and just sort of savor this and um, I th- it's one of those moments something happens you you sort of suspended outside of time it's like you, you're sort of ungrounded for a moment and it, it's like wow you know I. We kind of knew it was possible because he was doing pretty well in the polls and and so forth but it you can't believe it until you actually see it so you can't actually believe it so uh it was like wow and then his family comes out the this new first family elect comes out and they're on the stage in chicago and gives a speech and so forth uh i just thought it was a magical moment for americans for the world really but uh, American society that it, it made me feel more American and more uh, included in what that means than at any other time I think I can think of in life, uh, that um, this guy with this, you know, this very rich but, you know, really diverse and far-flung identity, you know, but still he embraces a Black identity in his first—this Black family— and not only wins he wins convincingly uh, that is he wins by margins in the electoral college and popular vote that no one wins by nowadays it's you know it's, it, we have much 11 closer p.m elections.
0: it was over no question yeah, yeah.
1: it was none of the stuff you know that you're waiting days or, or or no one you know somebody decides not to concede and that sort of thing but it's a convincing you can go to bed on it you know and um so just the just the that after witnessing two thousand right with Gore and Bush, and this thing just sort of lingering uh, uh for for weeks and not knowing who the president is, and these close raising Obama elections. didn't
0: even give us an hour he didn't even give us five minutes. It was eleven yeah. o'clock, and we're done right. We had no time to worry
1: about the thing <laughs> so but that just said something tremendous about the country uh and again in 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 my fifty three years now uh I can't think of a moment in which I you know that you know, everyone has their sort of JFK assassination moment. If you ask your parents, "Where are you when JFK?" You know, anyone who's in this country, "Where are you? Where, you, where are you when JFK was assassinated?" They'll be able to tell you exactly what they're doing, who they're talking to, when they heard the message, and how they reacted. That was my JFK moment. That is the the, the sort of CNN banner headline. President-elect Barack Obama, in which uh, i always be able to tell you exactly what I was talking to, what position I was laying on the bed, looking at this on TV and flicking from flicking from channel to channel, trying to see who's going to call it first. So, yeah, um, it, it was one of those moments in time, like Pearl Harbor, like, you know, JFK, like 9-11
0: this one you, turned out a little better though it know. was better than all those <laughs> yeah
1: but it, it, it connects you to the american community and other americans in ways that you never felt that sort of immeasurable connectedness to it that is our country did this or this you know those bad instances this happened to our country our people 9-11 pearl harbor this happened to our president jeff k this is this is our president regardless of what you thought about him Nothing like that should happen to an American president. So it makes you feel more American, made me feel more American than I ever felt, but also very, very proud of that too.
0: Dr. Claude Clegg, the author of The Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: My pleasure.
0: Certainly check out that book and his website, which is claudclegg.com. He's on Twitter at Claude Clegg. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.